This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. I've kept you in suspense long enough. There really was a Moses. There really was an Exodus. The story we're about to celebrate is true, and there's much in Egyptian history to back this up. And so, the topic for this week is an encore presentation of part two of last year's pre-Pesach episodes, putting the Exodus into the context of history. As I explained in part one, the Exodus story covers a period of 430 years. They must begin with Joseph and end with Moses. I devoted much of the time in part one fitting the Joseph story into history. This week, I'll attempt to fit the other end of those 430 years into Egypt's history as well. But first, there's that secondary drama that occurred between Joseph and Moses that must play itself out. I mentioned that drama last week. That drama will have a profound impact on Egypt, and it will set the stage for all that's yet to come in the saga of Israel in Egypt. The Torah is completely silent about events that occurred between the death of Joseph and the period into which Moses was born. So, we have no events from those years that we can attempt to correlate with events in Egyptian history. But we do know what those events were. We left off last week with the death of Joseph and the routing of the Asiatic interlopers, mistakenly but commonly known as the Hyksos. These people came mainly from Canaan. The Hyksos pharaohs all had Semitic names, and they ruled that part of Egypt located in the Nile Delta region where the Israelites lived. With the Hyksos gone, a new Egyptian dynasty begins, the 18th dynasty, the period historians call the start of Egypt's new kingdom. And so, this is where we pick up our story. Much of the history of the 18th dynasty would be out of place here. There's one segment of this period, though, that must be discussed. The reign of a pharaoh who ruled Egypt from 1352 BCE until 1338 BCE. Just 45 or so chaotic years later, the Ramesside era will begin, and things will grow increasingly desperate for the Israelites. The king's original throne name was Amenophis IV, or Amenhotep IV, as it sometimes appears. In his fourth year, he changed that name to Akhenaten, and he unleashed a firestorm when he attempted to uproot Egypt's traditional religion by instituting a new one that had all the trappings of monotheism, in the words of the Egyptologist Nicholas Grimmel. Akhenaten wasn't a monotheist, as we understand the term, but monotheism would have been the logical result of his reforms had they been allowed to survive and evolve. Akhenaten's new religion involved the worship of one god who was represented by the sun disk. As Akhenaten himself put it, this god was the, quote, only god, like to whom there is none other, unquote. We're not certain what Akhenaten meant by the only God. What's clear, though, is that Akhenaten was heavy-handed in his approach to his religious revolution. 
and that revolution didn't survive him. The enmity it produced was too strong for his three immediate successors to ignore or overcome. Their reigns were brief and suspect, and virtually no record of their reigns even exists thanks to the habit of erasing anything inconvenient. As far as Egypt was concerned, there never was an Amenophis IV, by whatever name, or the other three pharaohs who followed him. As Egyptian history was rewritten, the pharaoh Amenophis III was followed immediately by a commoner named Horemheb, an army general who became the last pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. Horemheb became pharaoh because he, more than anyone else, made it his task to wipe out any traces of Akhenaten and his heresy, and to restore Egypt's normal modes of worship and its multitudinous pantheon of gods. Commoner though he was, he had enormous support from Egypt's elite and its priests. If Israel was in Egypt at the time, and in one way or another adhered to monotheistic beliefs or tendencies, Horemheb surely would have seen them as threats to be dealt with in the strongest ways possible. That brings us to two of those annoying coincidences that run through the story. We had a few in part one. Now, annoying coincidences go into overdrive. One of these involves why the Akhenaten episode is known to historians as the Amarna period. That's because it was at a place called El Amarna that he established a new capital to go with his religious reform. Akhenaten, however, never heard of the name Amarna. The name accrued to the site in the 18th century of the Common Era because a Bedouin tribe known as the Beni Amran inhabited the area when it was discovered. We know virtually nothing about the Beni Amran. The name means the children of Amran in Arabic. In Hebrew, that works out to be the Bene Amram, the children of Amram. In the Torah, the Bene Amram are Levites, and their names were Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. Is there a connection between the Bene Amram and the Beni Amran? No one has studied that as yet, at least not that I know of. The second nagging fact at this point is this. To reach Amarna, one must first travel to the ancient town of Malawi and take a ferry for a brief ride across the Nile to Amarna on the other side. Many scholars claim that Malawi is Coptic for city of textiles. In Arabic, however, mal could mean property, estate, or capital. Lawi is Arabic for the name Levi. So, Malawi could mean the property of Levi, or the estate of Levi, or the capital of Levi. In other words, in Arabic, Malawi translates as the city of the family that gave birth to Amram and his son Moses, and it was the city of the family that would become Israel's priests. Could it be that it was the original Beni Amran who finally drove Akhenaten to reject Egypt's pantheon of gods and to push his religious reform to its limits? Is that why Israel was enslaved? Very likely, we'll never know the answer to these questions, or even whether they're legitimate questions to ask. In any case, 
Horemheb would want the Hebrews, as the Egyptians called them, out of the way if they exhibited any monotheistic tendencies along the lines of Akana. Horeb then would be the new Pharaoh who, in the Torah's words, arose who knew not Joseph and would have enslaved Israel. He's not the Pharaoh, though, who launched the genocidal campaign to kill Israel's male newborns. That despicable distinction probably belongs to the Pharaoh Seti I. I'm getting ahead of myself. In Horemheb's final days, he chose another general of low birth to succeed him. We know him as Ramesses I, founder of Egypt's 19th dynasty. Ramesses I was quite old when he became pharaoh, and so he rules for a little under two years. That's when his son Seti I took over. As I also noted last week, for this chronology I propose to work, Egypt's capital needs to be in the same basic vicinity at the beginning and at the end of Israel's 430 years in Egypt. And so it was. Either Ramesses I or his son Seti moved the capital back to the exact same site of the old Hyksos seat of power in the Nile Delta. Either Ramesses I or his son Seti did that because they were born and raised in the Nile Delta. It's possible, then, that Ramesses' family was descended from a family that, at the very least, had intermarried with Semites back in the days when the Hyksos moved. There's a hint that this is so to be found on a stone slab, a stele, that was excavated at Tanis, which was the site of both the old Hyksos capital and the site of the Ramesses capital of P. Ramesses, one of the two cities the Torah says the Israelites were forced to build. The stele shows Ramesses II sacrificing to the god Seth. The accompanying text reports that Ramesses' father, Seti I, quote, came in the 400th year of the god Seth to do him honor, unquote. Because the god Seth was nearly 2,000 years old by then, not 400 years old, that comment is quite suggestive because the recreated Seth of the Hyksos I mentioned in Part 1 was only about 400 years old in Seti the first day. Seti was honoring the Hyksos god, not the much older Egyptian god. The Hyksos, as you heard in Part 1, recreated Seth in the image of the Semitic god Baal, and they elevated him above Egypt's other gods. In most of Egypt, though, Seth was hated because he was the murderer of the popular god Osiris, father of the god Horus, Horus being the one most Egyptians saw as their chief protector. Horus and Seth battled it out for 80 years, according to Egyptian mythology, until Horus finally defeated him. When the Hyksos came along, they recreated Seth in the image of Baal and put him ahead of Horus. That was what the Hyksos did, and it's also what the Ramesses did. Here we are, so soon after the Akhenaten debacle, and yet Seti I chose to memorialize the recreated Seth of the Hyksos, the god whose name he bore, no less. One question raised by the biblical presentation of Moses' youth is how a Semitic child could look enough like a native Egyptian to pass for a Ramesses prince, after all. 
That's what Moses supposedly did for the first 40 years of his life, pass as a prince of Egypt. One explanation is that he was a member of the royal family. In other words, that the Ramesses had a familial connection to Semites from the Hyksos era, perhaps even to the family of Moses itself. That would explain, among other things, how a daughter of Ramesses II, who emerges as his, quote, great wife, unquote, you heard that right, he married his daughter and made her his queen. Egyptian pharaohs did that a lot. This would explain how Ramesses II could name his daughter Bit Anat, meaning, quote, daughter of Anat, unquote. Anat, as you heard in part one, is not an Egyptian goddess. Her name is Semitic and she is the Semitic goddess Anat Astarte, Baal's lover, no less. She's known as both the goddess of war and goddess of love at the same time. Ramesses II chose Anat to be his warrior god whenever he went into battle. Interestingly, Jewish tradition claims that the princess who drew Moses out of the water was named Batya, or Bitya, meaning daughter of God, power of God. It's not a stretch to believe that Jewish tradition would drop the name Anat from the woman who raised Moses as her own son and add to her the name of the one true God so that daughter of Anat becomes daughter of Adonai. Such a tie between the Ramesses and Moses' family would explain a number of other mysteries as well, such as why Moses was so quickly accepted at the Pharaoh's court since it's unlikely that anyone at court was fooled by his parentage from the very beginning. It would explain why Moses' sister Miriam had no problem entering the palace or approaching the princess, or why, with Miriam's help, Moses' real mother was immediately hired to be his wet nurse. And it would explain as well why Moses later was able to confront the Pharaoh so many times without ever suffering any dire consequences. It also would explain why Moses and his brother Aaron not only have no problem gaining an immediate audience with the Pharaoh whenever they chose, but that Pharaoh obviously knew them by name from their very first encounter. It also would explain how Aaron, supposedly a slave himself, can leave Egypt and return without any hindrance, as he does when he goes out to meet Moses as the latter is returning to Egypt. Bottom line. For Moses to have passed for a prince of Ramesseed Egypt, he must have looked like a prince of Ramesseed Egypt. That brings us to the pharaoh of the Exodus himself. As I mentioned in part one, he was most likely the pharaoh Merneptah, because Ramesses II, his father, the pharaoh who built Piton and Ramesses, had died during the time Moses was living outside Egypt. That also fits into our chronology. To review, a little over 429 years have passed from the time Jacob arrives in Egypt until the end of Merneptah's reign. This would put the birth of Moses either at the end of Seti I's reign or, more likely, at the beginning of Ramses II's 67 years in power. Here we have yet another one of those annoying coincidences. Adding the 67 years of Ramses II's reign to the 13 years of Merneptah's reign gives us 80 years, precisely the age the Torah claims Moses was when he led Israel out of Egypt. To be fair, dates for the reigns of Egypt's pharaohs are always approximations, 
but the Torah deals in approximations as well. It has a tendency to round out numbers so that the 80 years of Moses' age at the Exodus may also be an approximation, especially since the number 40 and its multiples appear frequently in the Torah and are meant to indicate a segment of time of some significance. What's relevant is not that the numbers are an exact match, but that they're close enough to each other to fit into my timeline. Ramesses II was known as Ramesses the Great, and for good reason. When he died, Egypt was at its strongest, and its influence was at its greatest throughout the biblical world. Merneptah supposedly continued the work his father had begun. He too then should have left Egypt in good stead at his death. But when Merneptah died, Egypt was plunged into a darkness from which it would never again fully emerge. For one thing, Merneptah's son Seti II should have taken the throne upon his father's death. But it had been seized by a relative named Amenmesis. That he lasts nearly five years on the throne suggests the probability that the Egyptian army wasn't at the time capable of defending that throne. Adding to this probability is the successful invasion of the Nile Delta by Lebanese forces. There also was a great deal of civil unrest throughout Egypt after Menephtah's death. And again, there was no army in sight to put any of it down. Then there's Egypt's economy. It was in such collapse that it would take 75 years to recover. All these things apparently happened immediately upon Menephtah's death. The records we do have confirm that these things happened. They don't explain what calamity caused them to happen. Torah, on the other hand, would seem to offer one. God and Moses had brought Egypt to its knees. The name Moses, by the way, is not a Hebrew name. It's not even a name. It's a surname signifying being born and is attached to another name, usually of one of Egypt's gods. Ramesses, for example, means Ra is born. The usurper Amenmesis, his name, means Amun is born. So many scholars say there's no record of Moses in Egyptian history, but that's clearly not true. Unless you know what Moses' whole name was, of course you're not going to find it written anywhere. From Joseph to Moses, this recreation has managed to reconcile the biblical record with the historical one. It doesn't prove the validity of the biblical account, but it does prove that the biblical account is possibly true, at least in its bare essential. Scholars such as James K. Hoffmeyer and Richard Elliott Friedman have written extensively defending the general validity of the biblical story. Hoffmeyer has even argued, quite convincingly, that those critics who deny the Exodus deliberately ignore evidence that doesn't suit their theories. He gets no argument from me about that. Two issues remain to be addressed in this context, if only to dismiss them. In a museum in Leiden, the Netherlands, there exists a curious document unearthed in the late 19th century and referred to as Leiden Papyrus 344. Known also as the Admonitions of Ipoware, it was written in the Ramesseed era. No one disputes that. It also unquestionably talks of a series of horrendous events 
from the Nile turning to blood, turning to blood, mind you, not turning blood red in color, to a deadly hailstorm, to the sudden death of so many people that they had to be buried where they fell, to slaves looting Egypt as they made their escape. There also are intimations of a pillar of fire and a calamity involving, quote, pouring water, unquote, that resulted in the deaths of an unnamed pharaoh and many others. Given the dating and content of the papyrus, it's tempting to add that this uniquely Egyptian document is the first piece of external evidence, contemporary evidence no less, that the Exodus happened and that it happened in much the way the Torah describes it. Virtually no scholar is willing to make such a claim. Although no one disputes when it was written, most insist that Leiden Papyrus 344 is merely a copy of a much older document. It's the copy that was made during the time of Ramses II or Menephtah that was found in the 19th century. How they would even know this is beyond me, but if they're correct, then this is one more of those annoying coincidences that keep popping up. If the scholars are wrong, though, then the Torah was telling the truth in its own way all along. As with so much else involving ancient Egypt, it's doubtful that this will ever be resolved to anyone's satisfaction without the unearthing of new evidence. The final issue that needs addressing involves the plagues. The first nine plagues can all be seen as a series or several series of natural events. It's the tenth, however, that has long eluded explanation. The tenth plague is the death of Egypt's firstborn humans and cattle. Firstborn, though, is more likely a euphemism for the elite among society and among the servants, the best cattle, and so forth. But how did they all die? Enter science. If the story of the plagues in Exodus represents a retelling by the sacred historian of an actual series of events, such as is found in the admonitions of Hippoware, there'd be virtually no food left in Egypt by the time the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, descends on. The only place left would be in Egypt's granaries. The grain that would be stored there, though, likely wasn't spared the ravaging effects of the plagues. The conditions created by those plagues may have allowed a deadly mycotoxin to contaminate the grain. That's a theory put forth by Dr. John Marr, former chief epidemiologist for the New York City Department of Health, and his fellow researcher, Curtis Malloy. Their theory appeared in the May 1996 issue of Caduceus, a humanities journal for medicine and the health sciences. The Israelites wouldn't have been affected by this mycotoxin because they wouldn't have been given any grain, certainly not while everyone else was starving because of the plagues they were told that the Israelite god had unleashed. And ordinary Egyptians would have avoided the grain when they saw other people dying from it. Here again, absent new evidence, there never will be certainty. The bottom line here, though, is that the Exodus happened in one form or another. The Torah's truth is truth, but it's a truth as seen through the lens of the sacred historian. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back for my next podcast. 
And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. Keep wearing those N95 masks while outside, no matter who tells you otherwise. And get fully vaccinated if you haven't done so as yet, including both the first and second booster shots. Shalom. Enjoy the seders and the rest of Passover. Stay healthy. And above all, stay safe.